You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hello, and welcome to an author debriefing from the International Spy Museum. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Here at the museum, we get the most interesting authors, including journalists, scholars, former spies, and intelligence officers coming in to speak with our visitors and answer questions about their latest works dealing with espionage, intelligence, and other national security issues. Please join me in listening to another of our selected hour-long author debriefings. So good afternoon. Uh, Welcome to the National Spy Museum. Uh, My name is Vince Houghton. I'm the historian and curator here at Spy. I'd like to welcome you to another one of our author debriefing programs where we bring the top authors in intelligence and national security to talk about their new works. Um, If you've been here before, you might notice a bit of a format change. Uh, I do see some familiar faces. Uh, We have now shifted from having an author talk at you to having more of a conversation. Uh, to where he and I, in this case, will we'll talk about his newest book. And then, of course, we will open it up to you to ask any questions at the end that you may have about today's topic. So our guest today is Malcolm Byrne, who is the Deputy Director and Director of Research at the National Security Archives, which is located down the street at George Washington University. He currently directs the Openness in Russia and Eastern Europe Project and the U.S.-Iran Relations Project, both of which promote multinational and multi-archival approaches to the study of recent controversial historical events. Previously, he served as the co-director of the Iran-Contra Documentation Project and coordinated the Archives Project on U.S.-Soviet relations during the Cold War. He has written books about the 1956 Hungarian crisis, the ousting of Mohammad Mossadegh and the 1953 coup in Iran, and now three books on the Iran-Contra scandal, including his latest that we're talking about today, Iran-Contra, Reagan's Scandal and the Unchecked Abuse of presidential power. Welcome, Malcolm. Thank you for taking the time to come to the National Spy Museum. Thanks. Great pleasure. So I wanted to ask you, first and foremost, this is a 30-year-old scandal. This is not something that happened last week or even a couple years ago. And there have been some pretty expansive books written about Iran-Contra. What allows for a new scholarly book on this subject? That's a great question. It it has been 30 years, um, and a lot of water is under the bridge. Uh, Seymour Hirsch, the great investigative reporter, calls this the most underreported scandal of our times. And I guess that's one of the reasons why I I took another look at it. I've been doing this for a long time. Um, I I was struck at one point, I mean, I've been working on this fairly steadily, but um, episodically on this book. One of the things that struck me was that in the course of the last 20 years, there hasn't been a single major study of this scandal. How many studies are there of Watergate, for instance? Um, There was a great book by Theodore Draper uh, called The Very Thin Line that is still, frankly, the standard. Uh, It's about seven or eight hundred pages, and it's an incredible work of sort of piecing together all of the the testimony and evidence. 
but it's it's something that that you know I could read happily. I'm not sure how many other people on planet Earth would 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 go through the whole thing. So this is a small attempt to to put together a slightly more accessible account, but one that also uh, takes advantage of all of the available evidence that we have now. And uh, Draper had most of the evidence uh, that I have, uh, that we all have, but uh, he didn't have everything. He didn't have all of the, uh, the access to the personal notes of people like Cap Weinberger or Charles Hill, who was George Schultz's um, assistant, uh, and uh, for that matter, George Bush, George H.W. Bush's uh, personal campaign diary that he started in November 1986. So uh, a combination of reasons, a little bit more evidence available, a uh, little more time has passed, so this is, is one of the most controversial events that, I'm, uh, that I ever lived through, and it's still somewhat controversial, but after 20, 30 years, a little bit of that has died down, and, and it seemed to me a little easier to, to go back and, and uh, sort of look through the fog of, of rhetoric and politics and see exactly what happened. You brought up evidence and documents, and I, that leads me to my next question is, it, most times you're writing about intelligence or foreign policy, the problem historians tend to have is a lack of evidence, secrecy, mm -hmm. cl classification. Here you almost have too much stuff. <laughs> you have to do, yeah. I mean, tens of thousands of documents and right. press reports and everything. How did you go about culling that together to make something people, that isn't an 800 page book. Yeah, exactly. Well, that was a, a big challenge and that's part of what took, you know, so many years to, to go through. My organization, the National Security Archive, uh, had this as one of its first projects. We opened our doors in 1985 uh, officially and the next year this scandal broke. But we had already had people working on both Iran-US relations and on Contra uh, activities, investigating those. So we had, we kind of hit the ground running and we were able to uh, kind of create a, a name for ourselves as one of the only organizations, probably the only organization out there, that was tracking this scandal uh, without a, a policy uh, objective. We were not trying to lobby for any particular policy. This is an organization that tries to promote openness in government, essentially. Uh, so we were able to, uh, to, when the scandal hit, have a good idea already of what some of the, the major pieces were and then we made it a point to just follow all the evidence as it came out. So we have tracked it. We've kept, uh, we've got a big archive of material, right. not just that's come out directly from the scandal, but about Iran, U.S. relations, uh, U.S.-Nicaragua relations, and so forth. You also don't have a partisan bent, which I find that's refreshing. Right. I mean, you, you right. have people who are tackling historical issues from the left and the right, but not from that direction, more of just an objective right. viewpoint. We're not writing thing. policy papers. Right. We're just trying to get the stuff out there, essentially, so that all of you can look at it and see what it, uh, what it says to you, whether it makes sense, what it tells you about how our government is doing its job, what it's doing, and so on. Iran-Contra is one of the most misunderstood scandals. It's just so many moving parts. Uh, but one thing your book does that's refreshing, and, and I, I highly recommend it, is you alternate chapters. Mm -hmm. you, you have one chapter about the Iran side, one chapter about the Contra side, and then that's basically the structure of the entire book. Right. Um, and that allows you to kind of keep things together. Now, of course, there are certain historical figures that overarch both of those sides, but structurally I thought, is that a decision you had from the very beginning or did editorially, this is more of an inside baseball kind of question. When you're putting the book together, was that something that you had planned from the beginning or something that comes later on? Um, it was something that was suggested to me by a colleague named Jeff Richelson, who's a great expert on, on uh, uh, 
the intelligence community and so on. He's written a number of books, and he's a fellow at the National Security Archive. And um, he, just off the top of his head, you know, said, you know, this is really how you should do it, because these two stories are so interconnected that it's hard to separate them. And the thing that, that cinched it for me was, uh, as you know from following this, this story, there's a point where the two uh, aspects of the scandal come together, the Iran and the Contra side, and that's in the, the famous diversion, the diversion of funds from the sale of missiles to Iran that are sent to the Nicaraguan Contras by Ali North. Mm -hmm. And that point comes uh, around December 85, January 86, and that's right about the middle of the book. So there's, if you look at it very carefully, you'll see this kind of, you know, uh, this X, <laughs> where the two strands come together in a, in a really neat way. So that, that seemed like a, a poetic way to deal Absolutely. with it. <laughs> We've already hinted at the idea that this is an incredibly complicated scandal, and for half this crowd may not have been alive at that point. Um, I was young. Uh, I remember the hearings, of course, but mm -hmm. I was not old enough to really understand them. We're not going to try to explain the whole thing at once. We're going to deconstruct this as we talk. But let, let's start with the Contra side, because I think that at least the foreign policy behind that is a little more straightforward than the mm -hmm. Iran side, which has a lot more moving parts. Mm -hmm. Can you brief, briefly explain uh, in the one-minute version of what, what is going on inside Nicaragua in the 1980s? Well, it starts um, in, in my rendition of it in 1979, which was a terrible year for U.S. policy and for President Jimmy Carter in particular, where he quote-unquote lost two longtime allies, Nicaragua and Iran. On the Nicaragua side, uh, the longtime dictator Anastasio Somoza had been a backer of U.S. policy. Had, uh, his family, in fact, had helped with the 1954 events in Guatemala, long record of, of support for all kinds of U.S. policy and activity. Uh, and he gets overthrown eventually in, in uh, July 1979 by a group led by the, the so-called Sandinistas, who uh, are a mixed bag of people, but uh, at their forefront are a few uh, folks, including the Ortega brothers, uh, Daniel and Umberto Ortega, who end up taking over the country and, and who are seen to be uh, Marxist in their orientation. Uh, and this is a question we can get into in, in some more detail later, but uh, essentially it's a, it's a Marxist-oriented junta that takes over from a U.S.-backed uh, government regime and uh, proceeds in fairly short order. And it's a complicated history. I'm, I'm really glossing over it simplistically, but uh, in short order, it is seen by the U.S. as being just absolutely hostile to American interests and uh, an entity that needs to be opposed with, uh, with everything the U.S. can, uh, can muster short of troops. Right. But that's another question, too. Right. And the Iran side is incredibly complicated as well. I mean, this is a country like you, you talked about that uh, was a great ally of the United States. Uh, ironically, if you look at many of the, the news reports today about Iran's effort against ISIS, they're using American weapons that we <laughs> sold them in the 1970s. Um, but the Iran is not a player, necessarily, in this broader scandal because it's not the hostages. The hostages weren't taken by Iran. They're taken by Hezbollah. Mm -hmm. And Iran is seen as basically a puppet master there, but that's even more complicated. Mm -hmm. What allows the Iran to even be considered as a recipient of US weapons during yeah. this time period? You, you, even, you talk about three factors in the book. Well, again, if you go back to 1979, when uh, another group of, of, uh, uh, of folks who eventually are seen as hostile to U.S. interests uh, help spearhead a revolution that overthrows the Shah, who's been our ally for many, many years, um, going back before the 1953 coup that you mentioned, um, it, 
the hostility doesn't set in right away. It takes a full year. Uh, it takes the, uh, the Iran hostage crisis of November 1979 to really cement this, where um, uh, over 50 of our uh, American uh, diplomats and Marines were taken hostage. Eventually, it's, um, uh, it takes 444 days for them to be released. Uh, and this, it's, it's impossible to overstate the importance of that event in cementing the, the viewpoint of American officials and American public towards Iran. It still influences our point of view towards the regime today. Uh, but that isn't enough to create a policy. So by the time the Reagan administration comes into office, and of course, as you remember, those hostages were freed within minutes of Reagan's inauguration in January 1981. Uh, but that administration comes into office really without any set Iran policy. There are no more than, than strands of thought as far as I can reconstruct it, and this I think is what you're referring to, uh, about the three strands. The three strands were basically, you know, what should we do? One group said we should just overthrow these guys, and there were dozens and dozens of opportunities to do that. There were emigre groups from Iran constantly, according to U.S. intelligence officials, constantly approaching them saying, we can do this, we can get rid of these guys, we can restore it to what it was, give us the arms, give us the support, give us the radio networks, whatever it is that it'll take, and we'll do it. So that's one strand. The other strand is to essentially con uh, continue uh, a policy of containment of Iran, contain the Iranian revolution, contain this new force called Islamic fundamentalism that nobody understands. But then the third strain is one that is driven by the Cold War. You, again, there's another thing that you can't really overemphasize, and that is the context of the Cold War. It's still uh, going strong. Uh, this is essentially the second Cold War, as it's sometimes called under, under Reagan. Um, and the, it's, it's an ironic sort of train of thought, but it does make sense in a certain way. Like how do you get from Cold War to arming Iran? Well, the thought was, that because the U.S. had, quote-unquote, lost Iran, who stood to gain the most from that? Well, the Soviet Union. That was the big fear. Well, how do you keep the Soviets from uh, pushing open the door and, and establishing a close relationship with Iran? One of the ways is to uh, take away the, the temptation by Iran to look to Moscow for weapons and other kinds of support. Uh, and so this was the idea, and it was, it was spearheaded by people like Robert McFarlane, who became the National Security Advisor um, in 1983, but he was by no means alone. When this scandal came out, the people just ripped him to shreds for this ridiculous idea of arming Iran. In fact, when you go back and look, and the record is far from complete, at least the public record, but you see that there are a lot of other corners of, of the government where people agree with this idea. They're worried about the Soviets. They don't want them to have any opportunity here. So why not just make, uh, consider the idea of allowing our allies to make weapons available on a case-by-case -case basis, just as a way to, to you know, keep, uh, try to keep the Iranians from going wholesale into the Soviet camp. Um, so there, there is a certain logic to it. So to, to encapsulate the Iran-Contra scandal, the idea was sell arms to Iran, mainly tow missiles, Hawk missiles, mm -hmm. anti-tank weapons, anti-aircraft weapons, to get them to convince Hezbollah to release some of the hostages they had taken in Lebanon, and then use the profits from the sales of arms to Iran to filter that and fund the Contras in Nicaragua fighting against it. Now, that's... I would say that's the narrow description. The narrow description. <laughs> now, this is problematic for several reasons, but one of them was there was a law on the books from the 1970s that said 
not only do you need presidential approval of these kind of missions, but you need to actually notify Congress of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. There's no intention whatsoever to do that in this that's case. Right. right. Um, when I say that I think that's a narrower definition, I think that the, the basic structure is that these are two separate and initially unconnected events. There's the Iran arms deals, which has its particular orangi origins and, and motives, and then there are, is the Contra side of it. Now, Ali North's diversion of the funds from the weapon sales to the Contras is the thing that everybody focused on, and that's a very interesting story in itself about what effect that had on the investigations. But in fact, when you look at, at the record that has become available, you can see that North was by no means alone in trying to figure out ways to get the support to the Contras outside of the congressional restriction, which was the so-called Boland Amendments, uh, starting actually in 1982, but the, the most restrictive one was in 1984. And in fact, going all the way up to the president, they make no bones about trying to find ways to go mainly through third countries, through foreign governments, to get uh, uh, them to make donations of various kinds, money or arms or equipment, uh, and, and give them to the Contras. And there is a lot of debate about whether and to what extent that was illegal, uh, but it's very important to understand that that was a, a key part of what they were doing. Uh, I, I wanna, uh, there's a very fascinating cast of characters uh, <laughs> involved in this scandal. Um, and there's so many interesting personalities, but I, I want to focus on a couple. Mm -hmm. uh, first and foremost, of course, Ronald Reagan. Uh, Reagan yeah. is somebody who is portrayed as being feeble-minded, as mm -hmm. not being very involved in foreign policy considerations. Now, this has been debated, but that is, seems to be certainly conventional wisdom from the left and mm -hmm. from others. Um, is this the case? I mean, I, it's, a, it's a loaded question. I think I know <laughs> the answer. Uh, well, I, I don't. I, I don't know who knows the answer. Yeah. I, I think the answer is all of the above. If you're, if you're looking at, at Reagan as someone who was an amiable dunce, as Clark Clifford once called him, to uh, someone who his defenders saw as just a great mind, an active, uh, you know, in, actually brilliant in some respects, you know, uh, was he asleep at meetings or was he running the whole thing? Well, take your pick. And uh, some of you may remember there was one of my favorite uh, Saturday Night Live sketches which was uh, right during this event. And it's a depiction of Reagan, who is uh, alternately at meetings with people, whether it's Girl Scouts uh, you know, with photo ops, or uh, it's, it's with Casey at the CIA and the others. And he alternates between being just you know, the, the, the stereotypical dunce to the guy who is running the show. And he, you know, he kicks everybody out, he's like, let's get back to work. And he you know, picks up the phone and he's giving orders in German and he's, you know, he's showing people where on the map things are. And there's somewhere in between there, uh, those two. He, he, there's no question from uh, a lot of, of uh, first-hand witness accounts that he did fall asleep in meetings. He did forget names of, of people and things like that. But uh, the theory that, that I work out in this book is, is not necessarily original, but I'm, I'm persuaded by it. And that is that that might have been the case for most things, and certainly on matters of technical policy issues and so on. But when it came to the handful of issues that he cared deeply about, and he passionately cared about certain things, anti-communism, uh, you know, uh, freedom fighting, freeing hostages, arms control, uh, you know, denuclearization, those kinds of things. He is on top of it, and he is the driving force behind those policies. Okay. You brought up William Casey already. Uh, mm -hmm. I think he's one of the, the director of the CIA under Reagan. Um, the, the CIA is not supposed to be a policymaker. 
Uh, does Casey take it in a direction that it wasn't intended to be? I mean, you argued that a little bit in the book. I just want to see. What you um, he certainly does. As I understand it, Casey's dream job would have been Secretary of State. He had uh, helped to run Reagan's election campaign. He was, they, were, they were good uh, pals with each other, uh, very close. And, uh, and that's the job that he wanted, but he did not get it. Al Haig, of course, got it. But instead, he got the CIA directorship, which fit with his OSS background. Uh, but it also came with a cabinet rank. And that gave him a lot of uh, authority and power to, uh, to speak on policy issues that previous and subsequent directors did not have. Let me move down the CIA ranks. Dwayne Dewey Claridge. Uh, That's him, top center. Okay, great. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so he was the operations chief for Latin America, for CIA, uh, but he's quite an interesting choice given his qualifications, mm -hmm. or perhaps lack of. Mm -hmm. Didn't speak Spanish, mm -hmm. didn't really know the area very well. What, what is the background behind why he's chosen to be a chief of an area that's obviously as important as it is? Well, I mean, there may actually be people in this room who know better what the story is, but uh, the, the way I understand the story from what uh, has come out was that um, uh, Casey met Claridge at, at perhaps a, a chiefs of station meeting or something like this and was impressed by him because he was an energetic go-getter guy who hated red tape and just wanted to get the job done. And you see this... At, throughout Iran-Contra, and I think throughout Casey's tenure as CIA director, this, because Casey is exactly that kind of person, hates red tape, can't stand politics when it gets in the way, and is willing to do pretty much whatever he thinks is necessary to get the job done. So somebody like that, when you're confronted by uh, a series of, of, uh, of lame, in his mind, uh, obstacles and political hurdles that the Democrats are throwing up to a policy that, that he and Reagan and others have no understanding of why there would be objections to this, then you know, their, their patience runs out very quickly, and they decide they're just going to bull ahead however they can. So finding a guy like Dewey Claridge who's willing to do that kind of thing uh, is, you know, makes a lot of sense from their point of view. And, and the CIA is really only one of several players mm -hmm. uh, in this. One of the other large ones, or arguably the largest one, is the National Security Council, mm -hmm. uh, led by two different national security advisors, mm -hmm. Robert McFarlane and John Poindexter. Let's see if I got those guys, yep. So that's McFarland, uh, and that's uh, Poindexter, and that's George Schultz and Cap Weinberger. And we we'll get to them, certainly. Um, are, are they the real puppet masters of what's happening here? I mean, very rarely do we talk about the National Security Council playing such a vital role. But the role here is, is I would say, is even more so than the CIA, mm -hmm. as being the ones that are running the show, forgetting Oliver North even in this conversation. Mm -hmm. But those two guys, McFarland and Poindexter, seem to be the ones that are pushing. And in some certain circumstances, they overrule the Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense mm -hmm. in conversations with Reagan. Mm -hmm. I would put them probably equal with Casey and the CIA. Okay. Uh, and I would call them more linchpins than anything else. And this gets to the heart of, of why I even call the book what I do, Reagan's Scandal. Because I believe that Reagan really was the driving force behind this. He may not have understood everything that was going on. As I said before, he's not a big detail guy. Uh, a lot of presidents are not. Uh, you know, there are more exceptions than, than those who prove the rule. Um, so whether or not, and we can talk about this as much as you want, Reagan knew exactly what was happening. He was the guy saying, make this happen, make this happen. And his uh, closest sort of lieutenants are McFarland and Poindexter, and both of them salute and, and, and carry out the orders as they see, it, as they see fit. And it says a lot about how the Reagan administration was organized and did business, that they were able to do this the way that they were 
at the expense of people like George Shultz and Cap Weinberger, who are supposed to be the senior cabinet officers. And a number of people I've spoken to from inside the agency as well uh, assign at least equal responsibility to Casey as they do to these two. Okay. Uh, Casey, they thought, um, uh, had the, the mindset, had the same belief that he understood exactly what the Gipper wanted and knew, knew how he could carry it out in a way that would protect him. Uh, and so they, they uh, give Casey at least an equal part in this. And finally, Oliver North, uh, mm -hmm. the face of Iran-Contra. Um, Top left. Marine, Marine Lieutenant Colonel, and something that always bothered me perhaps, um, is a Lieutenant Colonel is not a particularly senior position. This is not somebody who is a general, uh, is somebody that's used to leading troops and running large organizations. Mm -hmm. Do you have any indication of other than, well, <laughs> Other than his personality, I think that might even be the answer to this question. Why North was tasked mm -hmm. to lead such an important operation? Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, Reagan considered this to be uh, something that was a national security priority, mm -hmm. and you give it to a relatively junior member of the National Security Council team. Right. Well, if things had gone right, there wouldn't have been a need for this from the Reagan perspective, because if Congress had not thrown up these obstacles, then the CIA and the Defense Department and to, the, to some extent the State Department, could have just gone ahead and carried out their policies in Nicaragua uh, as, you know, as envisioned. But because of this progressive uh, imposition of obstacles, which is, is, in my mind, driven by the administration's uh, regular resort to increasingly um, uh, secret activities, it's not something, from my point of view, that Congress just sort of threw up because they felt like it, the Democrats felt like being uh, obstructionist. Uh, I think the record is pretty clear that at each stage, they saw the administration going ahead and, and enacting policies that they said they were not doing. In public, we were not trying to overthrow the Sandinistas. We were just trying to interdict, interdict armed supplies to leftists in Central America. Well, at, at every stage, uh, it was discovered that that was not the case, and so Congress had imposed new obstacles, and shortly thereafter, the administration would find ways to get around them. Well, it's this process of, of taking the policy further and further underground that, uh, that results in somebody like Ali North being given the helm, because Casey and the CIA were officially uh, removed from the equation by the law. The second Bullen Amendment second specifically Bullen said Amendment. intelligence agencies couldn't be involved in this, That's right. and somehow the National Security Council wasn't considered. Well, yeah. yeah, you want to get into that Please. definition? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, what I'm getting at is, is a definition of the National Security Council. The, the justification for using the NSC staff was, uh, from the administration's point of view, was that it was not involved in intelligence activities. And the Boland Amendment said no entity involved in intelligence activities could be, could be um, uh, used to support the activities of the Contras in Nicaragua. So here, though, you see Executive Order 12333, which Reagan signed, um, doesn't have to go through Congress. It's one of those great uh, little, little gimmicks that presidents use. And it says here, one point, Section 1.2a, purpose, the NSC shall act as the highest ranking executive branch entity that provides support to the president for review of, guidance for, and direction to the conduct of all foreign intelligence, counterintelligence, and covert action, and attendant policies and programs. So opponents of what the administration was doing looked to this and said, how can you say that the NSC is not involved in intelligence activities? They very much are involved. So this became one of a dozen fundamental legal arguments 
that to my mind partly explain why Iran-Contra sort of subsided in the muck of, of history because it quickly uh, it moved from these colorful personalities to this gray discussion of the law and legal technicalities. But um, again, my personal point of view is that this is, is fairly revealing uh, and, and does put the NSC under the sway of Boland. But how do they justify this non-existence? I mean, how do they justify still using the National Security Council? What was their argument for that it wasn't an intelligence agency? Was it just, it's not? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, basically it's not. Yeah. It, it's, it's, that's not what they do. They are an advisory body to the president and the president can do what he wants in foreign policy. Uh, that's a whole other huge argument that, uh, that I'm not, you know, that all sides weighed in on uh, ad infinitum, but. Um. Going back to personalities, because they're better. Um, <laughs> I, what I thought was, th there's really some interesting people who come across in the book and in real life uh, as honest brokers, for lack of a better term, or at least came off more ethically sound than those directly involved. And, and I'll just kind of go through the list and you can talk about either one of them or any of them. Well, George Schultz and Casper Weinberger, who you've already showed, uh -huh. the Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense, uh, who both objected strenuously to Iran-Contra on legalistic grounds. I believe Schultz talked about impeachment at several occasions. You also have Colin Powell, mm -hmm. who was an assistant to the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, the Deputy Director of Central Intelligence, John McMahon, who mm -hmm. was not a fan mm -hmm. of what was happening. Mm -hmm. George Cave, actually, who was uh, Iran expert. Um, and then I would even throw in Felix Rodriguez in this because what you see is what you get with Rodriguez. There was very little attempt to hide what was going on. Uh, to me, they came across as being less ideologically driven as some of these others or less of a uh, deceptive personality, uh, better in mm -hmm. many cases. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you want to tackle any of those or all of those or whatever you... Um, well, uh, for Schultz and Weinberger, if we go start with them, they were held out as, as, if not the heroes, at least the only people who showed some principle in this. So you have to separate the Contra side of things from the Iran side. Contra side, most of the administration agreed with the overall objective of keeping the Contras going. Even Schultz, who was the, the relative moderate in this. And you can see in a lot of the, the minutes of, of NSC meetings and so on where Schultz just feels like he's being pummeled by Casey and Weinberger and Gene Kirkpatrick and other hardliners for his quote-unquote soft view because he's interested in, in using negotiations to promote an agreement. And most of the others are suspicious of negotiations. So uh, Schultz, but also Weinberger on the Iran side, which is a different story because they're, you know, they're, how can you possibly really justify doing the things that, that Reagan did, which was agreeing to sell arms to a state that is on the State Department's terrorism list and has uh, taken hostages itself and is now uh, seen as the, the patron of a, a terrorist organization that has American sausage. How can you justify that? Well, these are the only two guys at the top level, certainly, who come out regularly and say, you can't do this. This is a bad idea. Um, let's, let's stop this right now. Reagan at every point says, sorry, I don't agree. We're going to go ahead with it. So they, they come across great in that respect. But they end up, uh, in my mind, falling victim to sort of the Washington career <laughs> trap or whatever you want to call it, where it turns out that although they both claimed later that they were largely ignorant of what was going on on the Iran side of things, they didn't know that deals continued to be made. They had been re uh, assured that, as Weinberger said, this baby had been strangled in the cradle. 
In fact, they did know very well that things were going on. They had access to NSA intercepts. They had other information um, that we know about because it's in their notes. We know that they, they're discussing this kind of thing. So they, they end up uh, trying to protect themselves in a way that I suppose is, is perfectly understandable. You don't want to take the fall for something that you opposed. Uh, and so they, they tried to put as much distance as possible between themselves and the, and the, the policy when, in fact, they were much better informed than they allowed. You even brought up the NSA intercepts, and I think there's an interesting story in the book about the NSA being ordered to keep information away mm -hmm. from Weinberger, mm -hmm. the Secretary of Defense, mm -hmm. and he had to go say, I'm the Secretary of yeah. Defense, you need <laughs> to actually... I am your boss. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he uses Powell to do that. Um, now, so <clears throat> the others, uh, you're talking about the CIA guys, like right. uh, McMahon and others. This is an interesting thing. Um, the, the CIA as an institution is essentially against this whole thing. Those who are in the know think it's a terrible idea. John McMahon is the deputy director and he comes in a, at a couple of occasions and uh, you know, he just must be bald because of how much hair he's pulled out at each occasion going, my God, what is going on here? In, uh, in late 1985, he discovers that these arms have been going to Iran without the benefit of what's called a presidential finding. A finding is a, a legal document. This is what a finding looks like. I hereby find that the following actions, blah, blah. Uh, the president, by law, was supposed to present one of these findings for any covert action that takes place. And this is another area of great dispute, whether it needed to be in advance, whether it needed to be in writing, this kind of thing. Long legal discussions could follow from that. Uh, but as far as these guys understood, they were supposed to prepare one of these each time uh, covert actions took place. Well, for the first series of arms shipments to Iran, no finding was prepared. Finally, John McMahon finds this out and hits the roof and says, we've got to have something put down on, on, uh, on paper. And they do, and it leads to uh, a lot of problems for the administration later uh, and the agency itself, ironically. Another area where, where he comes into play, McMahon, is when uh, he discovers that as part of the, the screwy operation, the U.S. is being asked, and in fact the CIA particularly, is being asked to provide intelligence to not one but both combatants in the Iran-Iraq war that is going on at this time. This is another event that you can't understand the scandal without. The Iran-Iraq war started in September 1980, so during the Carter period, and it went on for eight years and had tremendous casualties and explains a lot about Iran's position and thinking about itself in the world today, so I recommend it as a historical topic. Um, when we felt that we had lost Iran, our alternative, our booby prize, was to go after Iraq. So we started sidling up to Saddam Hussein, something that the Reagan and subsequent Bush administrations tried to sweep under the rug. But you now have probably seen the famous picture of, of Donald Rumsfeld shaking hands with Saddam Hussein. This is, that's in 1983. That's all part of this, this uh, uh, history here. So we were supporting Saddam and Iraq against Iran. And there's some great stories about uh, some CIA operatives, Thomas, Tom Twetton, for instance, uh, from the Near East Operations Division, arriving unannounced at Baghdad Airport with an armful of imagery and, and other intelligence that he wants to show to the Iraqis to prove to them that unbeknownst to them, the Iranians are mounting a huge offensive that is going to succeed and is going to cut off you know, Basra from Baghdad and it's all gonna be over if they don't listen to him. And he's got some great stories that I talk about 
uh, about his reception there, <laughs> what they thought of him and, and who he, they thought he was. Be that as it may, our policy was to support Iraq, and here we are supp supplying them with intelligence. Well, now comes this policy, and starting in, in uh, 19, early 1986, the CIA is now being asked to put together intelligence packages, battlefield intelligence, for Iran against Iraq. So we're supplying both sides with intelligence, and it, it drives McMahon and the career CIA people nuts. And, and McMahon writes a, a, a nasty gram to, uh, uh, well, I, I won't be able to find it quite right away, but I've got it up here, a, a nasty gram to Casey saying this is ridiculous. And this is one of the reasons why Casey continually goes around these guys to people that he feels he can trust. So he goes to uh, George Cave, who doesn't work at the CIA anymore. He's a, he's a, he's a retiree who isn't happy, but he goes along with it because he thinks there may be some, something to the policy. Um, and he, he goes through, Casey goes through Charles Allen, who's uh, well known nowadays because he, he had you know, a very senior job in the Homeland Security office. And he was the head of counterterrorism at CIA, not an Iran expert. Great guy, very competent and all that, but someone that Casey felt he could go outside the Iran division or the Near East division and say, okay, you monitor what's going on and, and keep track of things. Um, Casey understood perfectly well that, that the, the institution was not happy with this and he had to find ways to deal with that. I think one of the, the, the most unfortunate parts of all of the scandal is that no one from inside government did a whole lot to stop this from happening. Mm -hmm. I know there's very little you could do, but it really turned a journalist to break the scandal open, like articles in the Miami Herald. Uh, and it really, if it wasn't for potentially that crash C-123, mm -hmm. uh, just a bad, well, a stupid pilot going in over Nicaragua where he shouldn't have, mm -hmm. this may have never been discovered. It would have taken a lot longer right. to be discovered. But at that point, it became absolutely impossible to hide. And, and, and like most people will tell you, it's the cover-up that's worse than the crime right. in this case. Um, and North actually has a great quote that you have in the book. He says, for a covert operation, there sure were a lot of people who knew about it. Um, and that seems to be its undoing. Uh, so, so many moving parts, so many people knowing about what was going on. Um, can you talk a little bit about the cover-up itself? Because I think that's, that's what gets them into real, real hot water. Right. That's uh, a huge part of the story, and it takes up uh, probably four chapters yeah. or so of the book. Um, and it starts with a really important point that you make, which is that neither of these activities was discovered by law enforcement, by the administration, by you know, Congress, uh, to some extent by the media. There were people like Bob Perry and, and uh, Brian Barger and others for AP and other uh, outlets and Miami Herald reporters who were uncovering bits and pieces of the Contra story. But it took the shooting down of this cargo plane to, to really blow that out of the water. And it took a month later a, the, a revelation in a Lebanese news magazine of the, uh, the McFarland mission to Tehran, which had happened earlier in 1986, to blow that story open. And the question underlying all of this is, if those two events hadn't happened, how long would all of this have been going on? Would we ever have discovered it? But each of those events sparked a, a major damage control effort by the administration. So in early October 86 is when this, this uh, airplane gets shot down. And for the next several weeks, uh, there are congressional hearings and there are news reports uh, trying to get into this. And the administration is denying essentially any uh, connection to this aircraft when, in fact, there, it's very clear that there, there is a, a direct connection and it comes out pretty closely, pretty, uh, pretty quickly. 
Um, the bigger problem happens in early November when this Lebanese news magazine publishes this story, which is the, the result of an internal domestic squabble in Iran. It has nothing to do with anything else than that. That is a real problem because that gets into the, the issue that I mentioned before, which is the president approving covert operations without doing any of the legal work necessary for it. And that falls under the, the, the category of impeachable offense. And that is what really scares the administration. And they circle the wagons. There are a couple of key meetings a, a week later, November 10th, um, and a couple of others in, in November, where we now have notes from several of the participants. And we have, most particularly, we have notes from uh, George Schultz going back to his guys at the State Department and just shaking his head, going, I can't believe what these guys are doing. You know, this is, uh, I don't want to compare it too closely, but it's got the feel of Watergate about it. People are lying. People are circling the wagons. They're dragging me into this. It's, it's, a, it's a dramatic story. You write in the book that on at least seven occasions, Oliver North moved to suppress or mislead official investigations. Uh, and, and part of that wasn't just shredding documents. They actually went and altered documents. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I hope I've got, I can show you that. Um, yeah, we all know about the shredding parties, or if you remember the, the, uh, the famous shredding parties. There are occasions, like four or five occasions, where investigators discovered that, in fact, North had, had, uh, had changed documents around. So here's from March 16, 1985, called Fallback Plan for the Nicaraguan Resistance from North to McFarland. Um, not to go into the details, but the second paragraph says secrecy for the plan is paramount. We could not implement such an option if it became known in advance. And it also mandates that present donors, in other words, these you know, people who were, they were trying to use to get around the Boland Amendment to fund the Contra operations, uh, continue their relationship with the resistance, the Contras, beyond the current funding figure. That includes countries like Saudi Arabia, which was giving $2 million a month to the Contras. Okay, so that's March 1685. This is the same document, so-called, fallback plan for the Nicaraguan resistance. And when you read it, again, I won't go into all the details, but it, it's turned into this anodyne, meaningless thing, like we should really work hard with Congress to get this, this stuff done. Well, how did they figure this out? How did they find this, these documents? This kind of document, um, uh, doesn't quite say it up there, but there is a category of document called a System 4 channel which the NSC staff uses. And the System 4 channel documents are the most sensitive ones. They're on covert operations, they're on things like that. You can't just type out a System 4 document and keep it in your files. They are registered, numbered, cataloged, and kept behind a guard at the White House. So North wrote uh, a bunch of these documents, and this one in included. When he was trying to cover up what was going on, he understood that he had a lot of this evidence there that he had to figure out a way to get, uh, get rid of. So how could he do it? He had to go to this guy, this, uh, as, it, as it happens, a Navy guy who's assigned to this job, and sign out the document. Then he went back to his office. He had Fawn Hall as secretary retype it, according to this, and then reintroduce it back and say, oh, okay, I'm done with it, thanks a lot, you can file it back into its thing. Well, nobody would have discovered this if it weren't for some clever investigator who noticed something different. They changed the White House letterhead <laughs> sometime in, uh, in 1986, or you know, early in 86, something like that. And somebody was looking through these, and he went, wait a second, what? what's with this? That's how they discovered it. And they went through, and they found a bunch more of these documents that uh, uh, 
Uh, it, I mean, there's a lot of interesting humorous stories about the cover-up. It was so bungled. Uh, mainly, I, I would argue, and I think you do as well, every agency kind of had their own cover-up. You know, right. the State Department doing it, the Defense Department, everyone went back and said, all right, let's make sure right. our hands are clean. Do you think, again, this is a counterfactual question, but let's have fun. Do you think if there was a coordinated cover-up that they might have pulled this off? Well, they, I think they tried. I think uh, Ed Meese, who was the, um, the first counselor to the president and then attorney general and defender-in-chief, as he would you know, probably describe himself, uh, tried very hard to do this because, as you say, there was this kind of chaotic scramble to try to, to uh, pull things together in the aftermath of these two revelations. And it's, this is where, to me, this story splits from Hollywood and becomes you know, Washington reality TV. Hollywood, it's a, it's, a, it's a cabal. They're terribly coordinated. They're all you know, in it together. They figured all this stuff out. This was just chaos. Um, everybody was trying to protect both the president, many things. Protect the president, protect the policy, protect your agency, protect your boss, and protect yourself. The problem was that there were too many of these guys running around. So you had John Poindexter and William Casey going and testifying to Congress, saying things that, that Larry Speaks, the White House uh, press secretary, had just said was not the case, or that the president had said you know, was, was not the case. So uh, in, a, in late November, this is after several weeks of all of this, Ed Meese comes and says to himself, I have to, I got to do something. He goes to the president and says, we need to come up with a coordinated story here because this is just going to, going to hell. And they're going to, you know, you're going to pay for it. And Reagan, you can see in these notes, Reagan is deeply uh, involved in all of this. It's not that he's going around saying, destroy everything and, you know, let's keep it under wraps. The irony is that he actually thinks he does, has done nothing wrong. So he doesn't want to cover things up. He's, he says, just tell the story. Let's, let's tell them what we're doing. And everybody's, his A's are going to themselves, tell them what, that you <laughs> sold arms to hostages and you did it without a finding and this and that. It won't work. Meese takes it upon himself to come up with a story. Uh, I mean, that's my version of it. He would not say come up with a story. Uh, but that is, in effect, what happens. Because uh, up until the last moment when they finally have a press conference where they announce the connection between Iran and Contra, which is late November, just before Thanksgiving. The fear is this Iran story. Well, at one point, Meese sends a couple of his aides from the Justice Department to Ali North's office, and they sit there and they start looking through files. Now, how do they get the files? Ali is there, and they say, um, what else do you have that we should, would be interested in? And North goes, oh, well, Maybe these, or you know, maybe these. And they, they have North, the point is they have North telling them what they should be looking at, as opposed to clearing North out, locking down his office, and going through everything with a bunch of FBI guys. They didn't do that. Um, so, but in the course of this inquiry, they do come across this memo that is where North describes the famous diversion. And he's saying to Poindexter, this is what we're going to do. It's going to be you know, $12 million. Or, uh, and we're going to take these funds and divert them here to the Contras. Well, when these two Justice Department guys see this, they, they react. And, uh, you know, one kicks the other guy under the table and shows him the note. And they, you know, quickly go off to lunch with Mies, and they tell Mies about it. And Mies reacts with an expletive, like, oh, you know, now I've got this to deal with on top of everything else. But what you, when you retrace the story, you realize that 
that uh, what happens in Mises' mind is this evolution of thought, <laughs> where at first what he sees is yet another disaster in the making. He realizes after he goes to several people, Casey, Poindexter, North, McFarlane, and others, and talks to them about this diversion thing, he realizes that nobody knows about it except North and maybe Poindexter. Uh, he goes to the president, president presumably says, I had no idea about this. And what you end up with is the very convenient uh, situation where here's something that was bad, but cannot be pinned on the president, can be pinned on Ollie North and John Poindexter. So just before the press conference, they have a meeting, and, uh, and Mies presents this, uh, essentially this finding to, uh, to the president and others. And this ends up being the story that they agree to go with. So on November 25th, with great uh, to-do, they approach the, you know, the cameras in the, in the White House briefing room, and Reagan uh, very uncomfortably speaks for four minutes, exactly, uh, and says, we've discovered this terrible thing. First of all, the stories that, in brackets, we've been denying for several weeks, both of those stories are true, on Iran and the Contras. But worse than that, we've discovered that somebody in our staff has, has uh, connected the two and done this, this thing which is almost certainly illegal. And Mies follows with about 45 minutes of, of detail. And it sends the press corps howling down this avenue. Uh, Eleanor Clift, who worked for Newsweek at that point, said you could just hear everybody suck in their breath that it was that kind of story. It was just a really exciting story of potential you know, White House criminality. So off they went chasing the diversion and Ollie North and, and did the president really know about this or not? Well, Mies had already determined that the president hadn't known about it. So in that sense, it's perfect. Let them chase this story as long as they want and then we'll figure out what to do about uh, the Iran side of things and the other embarrassments. One of the, to me, one of the most interesting parts of your book is when you talk about consequences because as a historian, that's, I, wanna, I wanna know, you know, what, what, so what, the so mm -hmm. what question. Um, and, and one of the more interesting ones, I think, is that the, the impact of Iran, or the Iran side of this, on U.S.-Iran relations, mm -hmm. I, I thought they were bad to begin with, but this is really puts us in the position where it's very little that we can do to make these relations better. They just don't trust us mm -hmm. anymore because of this. Right. Yeah, I mean, this is, what's fascinating is that what, four or five years after the, the uh, U.S. Tehran hostage crisis, here you have the President of the United States willing to negotiate with the Islamic Republic of Iran. That's incredible, given the history that has, has followed since. Um, and you learn an awful lot from these dealings, which again, we've got a lot of documentation on. We've got everybody's notes that they've written. And even now, uh, Iranians are talking about this. Uh, Raf Sanjani, who was the, the Speaker of Parliament and one of the main guys behind this uh, at the time, has written his diary, or has published his diaries and written his memoirs, and he talks a lot about it, and so have other uh, people who were involved. The president of Iran, uh, Hassan Rouhani, was the commander of air defenses in Iran at the time. He was vitally interested in these weapons and getting these weapons. The Ayatollah Khomeini, by most accounts, knew what was going on. So you, first of all, you get the sense that um, there isn't this, uh, you know, written in stone prohibition on the Iranian side against dealing with the United States. Even the supreme leader, Ali Khamenei, was part of this, uh, who was alleged to be opposed to any talks whatsoever with the United States. Uh, so you learn a lot about how they think, about how they, they um, uh, interact with each other, and how relatively dynamic that political sphere is compared with what we usually think of. Um, 
So there, there's plenty to be, to be said about that. The problem that Iran-Contra posed, and I say Iran-Contra, it's the Iran arms deals in particular, was that it, it didn't create trust, which was the purported objective. The purported objective was to find so-called moderates in Iran with whom the United States could work and, and try to build a better relationship. When you look at how North and the others conducted these operations, this had to be the farthest thing from their mind because the amount of deception and trickery, false price lists, fake intelligence, uh, just lies and, and, and you know, cheating back and forth, not that they were the only ones doing it, but this was not in any way, shape, or form designed to build a relationship. It was designed to get our hostages out from the American side. That's it. That was what it boiled down to. There were people who wanted a strategic relationship out of it, but the bottom line was this is what it was all about. And uh, as a result, you know, when, right. when it blew up, uh, the Iranians actually wanted to continue it. When, it. when it all blew up, George Cave was still being contacted by them saying, so when can we meet again? What, let, you know, let's keep this going. And he fully believed that there were Iranians in that uh, circle who wanted a better relationship, not just weapons that they could fire at Saddam. Well, I've got 50 more questions, but because of time, <laughs> I'm going to open it up to the audience because I think you probably have some questions that you'd like to ask. Uh, if you wait one second, Laura's going to come behind you with a microphone since we are, uh, so we can pick this up uh, and she'll bring it to you. She's coming up behind you, right up here, Laura. Bye. Uh, front, second row, gentleman in oh, the great. white sweater, cream sweater. Hi. Uh, all of the, um, the entire inventory on both sides were, uh, were within the Army inventory. United States Army inventory. Do you imagine that given the uh, reluctance of senior levels at the, um, uh, at the agency uh, to put his fingerprints on this, that they did not come to the Army for the purpose of facilitating everything that they wanted to do? You asking whether the agency people wanted to protect themselves, and so that we had to go to the army. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that they did not come to the army to do that? Uh, to operate as the cutout instead of. Oh, the I see. Well, they needed the army because the army, as you say, had the weapons. CIA didn't have the weapons. Correct. Right. So they had to go to the army, and this is part of how you know it was impossible to keep this secret because you. You had to go to Anniston, you know, Depot, and all these other places where the, the weapons were, and get them transferred. Uh, and there were people at uh, at the CIA who had to, you know, work out the transfer themselves. And, and there were people at a number of different agencies. Uh, so but the army was critical. But to they this. didn't get them from the army. No, they did. Well, the, the Israelis got them from the army, and the Israelis well, got them to the Iranians. That, everybody is correct. There, there <laughs> were the first stage was uh, Israel acting as the, the middleman, essentially, saying, we will take the weapons from our stocks, right. which is probably what you have in mind, uh, and we will provide them to the Iranians, but you've got to replenish them. That was part of the deal. So the U.S. has to give us back right. uh, what we want. So th yes, that's the case until uh, around December of 85. But then in January 86, and I, I don't want to bore you cycling through these documents, but I've got the, the presidential order saying, okay, from now on, we're doing this directly we don't need the Israelis as the middlemen in the same way. It's not that they cut them out altogether, but they don't uh, go through Israeli depots. They, they then go straight to army uh, depots, and they take them out of army stocks. Wouldn't the army then have to report it as yeah. they go? 
did the Army report it? Yeah, yeah. There are a lot of depositions of people that, uh, who worked at all of these different uh, facilities who were asked about, you know, who gave the order, where did you think this was going, uh, what were the procedures and all that kind of thing. So they, they did, the, the, the rank and file did everything they were supposed to do. Uh, it's part of the, the record now that shows that people like, uh, like Weinberger and Colin Powell and, and a bunch of others knew exactly what was going on, knew where this stuff was going. They were the ones who signed off on it ultimately. Yeah, I, 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 the, the, point, the point I'm trying to make is that, that the Army resisted because of the Bolin and, uh, and executive order responsibilities to report to the Congress and to have to report to, to secure a finding and then report it. I, I think that's a fair statement. There were people all along at different ranks and, and uh, in different departments who objected to this. Okay. Yes, sir. Uh, this raises another issue. Why would the Israelis consent to weapons from their stockpile going to Iran, even if they knew that the United States would uh, replenish their stockpile? It is a critical part of the story, and uh, to a large extent, the Israelis are, are also a linchpin. Without them, would this have happened? I doubt it. Uh, McFarlane, as I said earlier, was trying to get across a policy change where that would allow the U.S. or its allies to send weapons, and he, they got laughed out of, you know, out of the meeting rooms. Um, a coincidence of events, a perfect storm of, of, uh, of meetings and, and interactions takes place in the late fall of 84 and spring of 85 that involve people like uh, the notorious Manager Gorbanifar was the guy that I had in mind, the Iranian. I'll keep this on the hostages here for now. Um, the, the Iranian intermediary, and uh, Adnan Khashoggi, the, the Saudi billionaire, those two got together as, as one group uh, with the idea that uh, this war between Iran and Iraq is going to be really lucrative. Let's get in on it. Uh, the problem is, and there's a very interesting development that, that happens here. It's not just that the war is going on. The problem, and I got this uh, in, to some degree from Iranians that I interviewed. I've been to Iran a few times in the in, in past years and tried to reach these guys who were involved to see what they would tell about it. Uh, one of the things that, that you discover is that right around this time, uh, the Iraqis started getting weapons upgrades, equipment upgrades, so, and tanks in particular. They started getting more advanced Soviet tanks. And the old style you know, RPGs that the Iranians had weren't going to do the trick anymore of penetrating the, the, their armor. So they needed something more sophisticated. Well, who produced the sophisticated stuff? The Americans produced the best stuff. And besides, as Vince said, the, the Iranian army was, you know, was basically a US-equipped army. So, well, who has American equipment? There, there are people around the world who have it, and there are ways on the gray market that you could get this stuff. But Israel is a natural uh, choice. And uh, Khashoggi and Gorbanifar, who has some murky connections to Israel that are not, you know, nobody, people agree or disagree about it. So they approach uh, the Israelis. Right around the same time, a guy named Michael Ledeen, who's well known in Washington, uh, was a counterterrorism uh, consultant to the NSC staff back then. And he was someone who also uh, knew a lot about sort of the world socialist community. He had a lot of contacts in the leftist kind of Europe, European and, uh, and uh, other uh, political spheres. He, and he happened to be good friends with Shimon Peres, who was the prime minister of Israel at that time. Um, Ladin is told by one of his contacts that if you want to make advances in Iran, go through Israel because they have good contacts there still. 
and they're interested in, in pursuing this kind of thing. Ladine goes to Israel, gets McFarland's permission, sort of. McFarland says, yeah, go, but you know, it's not, not that I will disavow any knowledge, but it's, it's an unofficial visit. And he goes, Ladine, and, and talks to Perez and says, we understand that you have you know, some possibilities here, and we'd be interested, probably be interested in pursuing those. Now, the story I got from Israelis that I interviewed may or may not be self-serving, uh, say that Perez was interested in doing something for Ronald Reagan. Immensely admired Reagan, was grateful to him for his help with uh, various Jewish-related issues in, in uh, Sudan and Ethiopia and, and so on, uh, and where Reagan, he felt, had done Israel a huge service. So he wanted to do something in return. And his response was, if Reagan wants this, let's, let's help them. So he sends David Kimke, who is the Director General of Israel's Foreign Ministry, to meet with McFarlane in uh, early summer of 85. And Kimke says, you know, we've got these, these possibilities here. Uh, another pairing that I should mention is uh, a couple of Israelis named uh, Adolf Schwimmer and Yaakov Nimrodi, who Nimrodi is a, an old-time Iran hand. Schwimmer is the father of the Israeli aircraft industry. They're both very tight with Perez and the... Uh, Israeli authorities, small pond over there, as we all know. So they're interested in this idea, too. They also have met with Khashoggi and Gorbanifar. Uh, so there's kind of, a, like I say, a perfect storm of things happening here. Kimki comes to McFarland and says, you know, we hear that you might be interested in, in developing, uh, a, you know, a, a push towards Iran. Um, it occurs to us that a way to do that would be to have both sides uh, show their, their bona fides. If you provide just a, a handful of weapons to them as a sign, they might be able, for example, to release some hostages for you. What do you think of that? And McFarland lights up because this is his way to get his policy uh, implemented. And he goes right to Reagan. And the reason I had that picture of Reagan at the hospital, you know, waving out the window, that's when he's in the hospital getting a polyp removed. And that's when McFarland visits him and says, we've got this opportunity, what do you think? And after a short while, Reagan says, great. But of course, what's on Reagan's mind is hostages, not necessarily the strategic opening that McFarland and Ledeen and others are talking about. It's not that he doesn't think that's a good idea. He has an interesting connection to Iran. He visited Iran. Ronald Reagan visited Iran in the late 70s. I never knew that until I was doing this. Um, but the bottom line, again, is, is hostages, and it's just Again, reality TV, it's not that there is this single thread uh, that leads from one point to another. It's, it's just a coincidence of bizarre happenings and personalities and uh, things that come together and, and end up pushing us in this strange direction. How much of anti-Iraq, anti-Arab sentiment was involved in Israel's conception of wanting to help Iran in the Iran-Iraq war? Well, I, I think it, it's very interesting, especially looking back at more recent events where Iran is Israel's avowed number one enemy. Back then, Iraq was the enemy, uh, and it was in their interest to try to you know, keep Iraq at bay, and they were perfectly willing to work with people in the Iranian military who were still around, who they thought they could uh, develop, you know, continue to develop relations with. Uh, that, that they thought made it worth their while, and, and so they were willing to, to back Iran at Iraq's expense. As military staff officers are groomed from the point that they reach the 0304 point, and 
by the time they get a star, they're obviously very visible and become accountable politically for the decisions that are made. Do you think that Oliver North was chosen as essentially a scapegoat because those above him in the military ranks would have been held accountable and kind of CYOA <laughs> at that point because he was given a lot of leeway. Um, I mean, the things that he did then, no lieutenant colonel today would have the authority to pull that off. And it, I mean, it appears just from someone familiar with the way the military works that he was given kind of everyone was, he was set up for plausible deniability. Do you think that that was actually intentionally done? Or do you think that that just kind of came about and, you know, you give a mouse a cookie and? <laughs> um, I, that's a great question. I, clearly, he derived his power not from his rank, but from his position at the White House. And also, as a result of the way that that particular administration ran things, and that's a whole huge discussion, but what it boils down to in my uh, reading of it is that Reagan was a, a hands-off president. He, he was very clear about what he wanted to accomplish, but then he, he paid fairly little attention to how it got accomplished. And that left the rest of his advisors in, in almost a free-for-all to decide how they were going to do things, what they were going to do, and so on. Um, there, you know, there, there wasn't a lot of adult supervision, as, as some people have said. So when you have someone like uh, the National Security Advisor saying, okay, I understand what the President wants, and he's more or less given me free reign. He hasn't told me what to do or what not to do. He's just said, keep the Contras together, body and soul, for instance, and get those hostages home. I've interviewed a bunch of, of people from the agency and elsewhere who said that they didn't leave a meeting without being asked by the President what's happened with our hostages, where are they, what's going on. So a lot of pressure from above, but no guidance. And that leaves everybody free to do what they want. So Poindexter and McFarland say, all right, well, who do we have to do this kind of thing? And as you've, you've mentioned, I mean, this comes down to personality. And North, by all accounts, is an incredible personality. I mean, incredibly energetic, creative. You read his memos. I mean, he's up at 3 in the morning writing five-page memos full of ideas about where we should go and who we should contact and how we should make this happen. Uh, so he made himself indispensable. Um, on, as for whether he was a fall guy, there are indications that from the get-go, Casey essentially let North know. North ascribes a lot of responsibility to Casey. Says he's the guy who, who put me in, in, uh, into action, as much as McFarlane and Poindexter was Casey. And Casey made it fairly clear that you know, if something happens, you know, it's not me that's going to take the fall. It's, it's you. And North says he basically saluted and, and kept marching. Uh, that's sort of before the fact, and when everything hits the fan, it's very clear he is the, he's easy, he's an easy one. And you get to a, a, an interesting split that shows up during the hearings and during the, the investigations, which is this is by no means a coherent uh, operation here. These are people who are, uh, a lot of them want to protect the president, no question about it, but they're also out there to protect themselves. And North. Uh, reaches this, this line where he realizes that he's not going to just be the political fall guy, but he could face jail time for this. And at that point, he says, forget it, all bets are off. And so if you go and you look back at the hearings, um, you find that, uh, that he, although he says a lot of things that show his loyalty to the president, he basically is, is saying, look, I, everybody knew what I was doing. As far as I understand, the president knew what I was doing. 
I was authorized to do everything, not my fault. He's looking out for himself. The guy who's really loyal to Reagan is John Poindexter, who says, I take responsibility for this diversion thing. I'm telling you now, I did not tell the president about that, so story over, case closed. And he risked jail time and took all that on himself, which I, I don't think he gets a lot of credit for. If you want to give him credit for that kind of thing, if you believe his story, which is a fascinating part of this, um, then uh, that, that's a, another interesting wrinkle. Well, Malcolm, th thank you for taking the time to be here today. Uh, again, his newest book. Uh, we have on the back for sale. We stay a couple extra minutes in case Absolutely. people want to sign your book. Um, and please join me uh, in thanking Malcolm Byrne for taking the time to be here this afternoon. I hope you enjoyed this author debriefing. We'd like to know if you have any questions or comments about it. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. We look forward to you joining us again for another of our author debriefings. And thanks for listening.